It was the first time the game of softball ever made an appearance in the Olympic Games. This was back in 1996 at the Summer Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia. And there was this real peculiar game in that tournament. Team USA, the women's softball team, the team that everybody was talking about because prior to the Olympics they'd already won 106 games in a row and all kinds of world championships, so they were the heavy favorite. And yet that summer their winning streak was broken and it happened twice. First in the preliminary rounds, Team USA lost to China. Now they came back in the final round to beat China 5-1 to one, and so they ended up winning the gold medal. So in the end everything worked out fine for Team USA. But it was the game that they played against Australia that had everybody talking. They call it the home run that wasn't. In the top of the fifth inning, Danielle Tyler, the third baseman for the American team, she hit a home run. I mean, the ball went sailing 20 feet over the left field fence. And her teammates were just ecstatic because it was the first score in the game, so they came running out of the dugout to greet Danielle at home plate. And yet, in the joy of the moment, in the jubilation of high-fiving everybody, Danielle never actually touched home. And the catcher from Team Australia noticed, and so did the umpire. So when all the players, the American players, returned to the dugout, the girl from Australia grabbed the ball, tagged home, and the umpire signaled to the crowd that the home run didn't count. Danielle would have to return to third base, the last base that she had actually touched, and she remained stranded on for the rest of the inning because none of the batters on the American team could bring her in, could drive her in. So at the end of five innings of play, the score remained zero to zero. Now here's the other unusual thing about that game. Team USA's best pitcher, Lisa Fernandez, she was on the mound that day. And she had a perfect game going until the bottom of the 10th inning. Two outs, two strikes on the batter at play, and when you know it, Lisa throws the only bad pitch of the entire game. I mean a fat one, right down the middle of the plate. And so Joni Brown from Team Australia just clobbers the ball and it goes flying over the center field fence and Australia wins the game. But everybody in the American side was thinking back to the top of the fifth inning and if only Danielle had just been careful, after hitting that home run, if only she had been careful to touch home plate, Team USA would never have been in this situation. So everybody on the American side was thinking to themselves, here was the game we lost, and yet, it was the game we should have won. How many people have you seen start out well? I mean, they start out so well in that job, or they start out so well in that relationship, or they start out so well in that project, and they seem to have everything going their way. And yet ultimately the game was lost, the prize was never claimed, the goal was never reached because they didn't see things through. They didn't finish the job, they didn't finish things right. I mean, first time up at the plate, they hit a home run, they knocked the ball out of the park, and you think, wow, with a beginning like that, how could they not succeed? Rest, relax, I mean, from here on out, it's smooth sailing. Not so. Because it's not only important how you start, it's crucial how you finish. And how many times have you seen this happen in the Christian life? Somebody starts out their life with Jesus with a bang. I mean, in a tear-jerking, dramatic way. And it's obvious that God's got a hold of their heart. And yet, years later, something happens. And they don't stay the course. Somehow, some way, they begin to drift. And they get off course, off track. And they never get back on the right path. They touched first base, but they never made it to home plate. And maybe it's because they don't know or realize, or maybe they've just forgotten what Peter's teaching in this scripture that we're going to study today, that we were not only called to come to Jesus, we were called to follow him. That being saved is more than just making a decision for Jesus. It means you become a disciple of Jesus. And there's a whole lot more to becoming a Christian than just getting wet. We're expected to grow. We are expected from this moment on to live a totally different kind of life because of our relationship. I don't know about you, but I'm always haunted by that parable that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. Do you remember the story? 
here's this rich man, this rich boss, and he's going to be gone for quite a while. So he calls in three of his most trusted employees. And he says, listen, guys, I'm, I'm going to be gone for a while, and while I'm away, I want you to keep the business going. And don't worry, don't panic. I'm going to provide you with all the resources you need in order to carry out this job. And so he gives to the first man five talents, and to the second man two, and to the third man one. Now, each talent is the, is the equivalent of a million dollars. So he's given, the boss, this rich man, he's given each man a lot to work with. Well, the boss takes off, and those first two men, man, they just get right to work. I mean, they're not about to stand still and maintain the status quo. They want to see this business grow. And so that man with five talents, he takes those five talents and begins to work with it and invest it and see if there's any way to multiply these assets. And sure enough, by the time the boss comes back, he's taken those five talents and transformed it into ten. And same way with the second guy. He works hard and he takes risks. He tries every possible way to see how he can take those two talents and make something more out of it. And sure enough, by the time the boss comes back, he's taken those two talents and multiplied it into four. But it's the third guy in the story that just haunts me. He's a frugal man. He wants to play it safe. Hey, I want to make sure that I don't blow the master's money on something foolish and watch all those resources just go down the drain. So he takes the money and just buries it in the ground. That way, when the master returns, he can give him back 100% of what he received. The master has not lost a single penny. And yet when he does that, the master gets upset. And he calls this employee a wicked man. Now I'm thinking as I'm reading this story, wicked? <laughs> hey, isn't that a little strong? I mean, when I think of somebody being wicked, I, mean, I think of somebody who's doing something terrible, something bad, something really, really bad. And yet this employee hasn't done anything wrong. There's been no stealing. There, there's been no immorality of any kind, no reckless irresponsibility. I mean, he didn't take the boss's money and spend it in parties and prostitutes. There's been no gambling or exotic getaways to the Caribbean. In fact, this employee has not spent one penny of the master's money on himself. He gave him back 100% of what he received. And yet the boss calls him out and dares to call him wicked. And I'm thinking to myself, what's going on? Well, it's obvious Jesus is teaching the story for a number of reasons. And one of the lessons he's wanting to teach us is about sin. Sin is missing the mark. Sin means you didn't hit the target. But what Jesus is showing through that story is you not only miss the mark when you do bad things, you also miss the mark when you fail to take all the good things that God has given to you and you don't make something out of it. A car that's never driven goes nowhere. A dollar that's never spent buys nothing. An I love you that's never spoken touches nobody's heart. And a man who's been forgiven and redeemed and yet doesn't use that freedom to show grace to others, you have missed the whole point of why God made you and why God saved you. To fail to take this life, this gift that we have from God, to fail to take this life and stretch it and invest it and to develop it to its fullest potential, that is just as wicked in the eyes of God as a murderer or a rapist or any other person who commits the most egregious violations of God's law. You see, the question for the Christian is not just, have you stopped doing bad things? That's only part of the story. The other side of the coin is this, what good things are you doing with the life and the resources and the opportunities that God has given to you? Well, Peter shows us how to answer that question in the right way in this scripture. So let's take a look at this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Now, before I read through the verses, I want to point out a couple key words to help us better understand this text. For example, verse 5. First part of verse 5 says, For this very reason, make every effort, and here's the expression, to supplement. Your translation may say, to add to or to supply. 
And then that same Greek word is used again down in verse 11, the verse that Matt was making reference to. Notice the first part of verse 11. It says, for in this way there will be, and here's the expression, richly provided for you. It's a Greek word, epikoregio. And it was a word that was used back in the ancient world to talk about the dramas that they would put on. And the reason they were able to put on this drama is because they had a benefactor. Some rich person would come along and say, I'll make it possible for you to do this. He, he would come along, just cover all the expenses, underwrite the whole production. He'd pay the salaries for all the musicians and the actors and the dancers. He'd go out and buy all the props. So everybody who's involved in this play would have everything they need so they could put on a first-class drama. In fact, this word epikoregio literally means to contribute in an extravagant way. It wasn't just that he provided them with all the resources he needed. He gave them the very best of resources. So that hopefully with this kind of backing, now everybody involved in that drama would be inspired to want to do their very best as they acted out that play and as they presented that drama to their audience. That's the word that's being used here to talk about how God has so richly provided us with everything we need so we can live a godly life. So we can take this light, this gift from God, actually open it up and begin to use it and do something with it. Then the other key word you really need to keep your eye on if you're going to appreciate what you're reading is you're reading through 2 Peter is the word knowledge. Peter uses that word 16 times as you work your way through this little book. For example, verse 2, he says... God's grace and God's peace are multiplied to us. They become ours in more and more abundant measure as, as we really come to know God and as we really come to know Jesus. And when Peter uses this word knowledge, he's not just talking about putting facts in our head. He's talking about the knowledge that comes through personal experience. Remember as a kid, you were out riding your bike one day, and even though your mom had told you a million times, look both ways before you cross the street, you didn't take it all that seriously until... Until that moment, that day, when you came racing through the intersection, and you didn't even bother to look, and out of nowhere, this SUV appears and screams to a stop. And I mean, if they'd gone another six inches, you would have become a new and permanent hood ornament on that SUV. And as you're standing there, right after this happens, as you're standing there in the middle of the intersection, realizing you just about lost your life, as you're standing there, your heart pounding in your chest, suddenly those words, look both ways before you cross the street, suddenly that, is that, that piece of wisdom has taken on a whole new level of importance for you. Now you know, not just up here, now you know from personal experience how wise and valuable that truth is. You really do need to be careful to look both ways if you want to successfully make it across the street. That's the kind of knowledge Peter's talking about. To know God, but to know him from personal experience. Because when you know him that way, it changes your life. So let's take a look at the verses with that background in mind. Verse 3, his divine power, talking about God. And I think what we have here is, is a subtle reference to the Holy Spirit. His, his ministry in our lives, how he lives in us and he works in us. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through our daily walk and experience with him, who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great, very great, it's the word mega, his very great promises. And you want to know what those promises are? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and just slowly work your way through that chapter and take note of all the things that God is not only guaranteed to do for us now, but he's also guaranteed to do for us in our future. It is through these promises that you may become 
partakers of the divine nature. That's just Peter's way of saying we're made in the image of God. We were made so that we could enjoy a relationship with God, and we were made so we could reflect His glory to the world around us. And becoming partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, I think a great commentary on these two verses is what you read back in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where the Apostle Paul says, continue. And that's just Paul's way of saying the very same thing that Peter's going to say here. Make every effort. Paul says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is that God, understand this, this is what should create that sense of awe. It is God who's at work in you. Talking again about the Holy Spirit. It is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. We work out as God works in. That's what he's talking about. God supplies, God provides, and then we take what he has provided, and now we begin to do something with it. He does his part, we do our part. Don't misunderstand, the Apostle Paul did not say we work for our salvation. Salvation's a gift, but it's up to us to take that gift and unwrap it and pull it out and begin to do something with it. You heard us use these analogies just a couple months ago. What, what, what is he talking about? Work out your salvation. Well, think about when you go to the gym. You go to the gym to do a physical workout, but you're not working out to get a body. No, that's something you've already got. No, you're working out to take this body that you've already been given and now develop it. Make something worthwhile out of it. Or you think about working on a puzzle. You've already got all the pieces you need so you can create that same picture that you see there in the top of the box. But in order to create that picture, it's up to you to take those pieces and put them together. Or I think about a garden. I've always got this picture in the back of my mind. My dad, as I was a boy growing up, no matter where we lived, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, he always had a garden out in the backyard. And I think about all the hard work, he, 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 you know, watching all the effort that he put out because he knew those beans and tomatoes and cucumbers, they're not just going to magically appear out there. Hey, I wish there were some. Boom, they're there. Doesn't happen that way. It takes some work. So there's digging and hoeing and removing the rocks and the weeds and adding the compost and the fertilizer. And yet my dad always knew no matter how much work he did, it wasn't just a matter of him doing his part. God had to do his part. It was God who made the seed grow. It's God who provides the rain and the sunshine. It's God who provides the environment and the conditions from which... Dad could work from and now experience something good as a result. God working in, man working out. God doing his part, and we're to do our part. Well, that's the question here. Peter says God supplies the power, and God provides all the promises, but what is it we're supposed to be working on? We'll look at verses 5, 6, and 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement. That is, take the resources that God has already provided. So richly provided for you. Now take those resources and use them to develop your faith, to develop the virtue, the moral excellence, the goodness, to develop the knowledge, the self-control, the steadfastness, the godliness, the brotherly affection, the love. He mentions eight different qualities. And he could have said more. Why these eight? I think it's because these are the very qualities that are missing from the lives of those false teachers that Peter's going to talk to us about in chapter 2. Here's the fruit that you do not see in their life and why you should not be following their teaching. Peter says, verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and yours in increasing measure, you're growing all the time, growing and developing. If these are your qualities and, and you have them in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 4, verse 9, Whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted. They don't think about the world to come. They're only thinking about this life. They don't think about God. They're only thinking about themselves. And here's why they're nearsighted. 
because they've chosen to be blind. It's written in the Greek in such a way it means they have willfully shut their eyes. They don't want to see the truth. They don't want to. They're happy and content in their ignorance. Just leave me alone. In the same way with that next expression, it's written in the Greek, it means they have deliberately forgotten. They choose not to remember how God has cleansed us from our former sins, and the reason why he provided that cleansing is so you wouldn't live that way anymore. Now you could live in a new way with Jesus. So verse 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. We were chosen by God, called by him, but called to what? Again, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. We were called to follow Jesus. Peter says, if you'll take all those qualities and virtues that he was talking about in verses 5, 6, and 7, and you begin to practice, I mean, put it into practice on a daily basis, he says here at the end of verse 10, you will never fall. Now, he doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. You're never going to have another problem in your life. He's not saying that. James says, James chapter 3, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Talking about Christians, and James is talking about himself. The Bible also says, the book of Proverbs, though the righteous man falls seven times. Get that? It uses the number seven. You're, you're just kind of, that, that's going to be a regular part of your life. You'll, you'll have moments you fall, you stumble. But then the verse goes ahead to say, though the righteous man falls seven times, yet he will rise again. So you think about taking a hike on a mountain trail. At different times you trip and you lose your balance, but it doesn't keep you from continuing the journey. When he talks about here, you will never fall, he means you'll never fall in the sense you tumble clear to the bottom of the mountain and you're permanently injured where you can no longer complete the trip. That's not going to happen. If you allow God to do his part in your life and then you begin to do your part, take those qualities and begin to develop them and grow them, you're never going to fall. For, verse 11, in this way, here's our expression again, epicoregio, it'll be richly provided for you. What? What is richly provided? An entrance, a welcome. That word welcome, man, it was, it was incredible. Back in the first century world, they would use it to talk about like this hometown boy, a young man who's, who's working really hard. He's an athlete. He's, he's got a lot of natural ability here, and he's trying to qualify for the Olympics, and he does. And man, the hometown folks are just so proud. He travels off to Athens, Greece to participate in their version of the World Olympics. And, and I mean, they're just delirious with joy. To, this is a, an incredible achievement just to even qualify for the Olympics. But lo and behold, he not only qualifies, he wins. He defies the odds and he actually wins. Now the people back home, they're just crazy with excitement. And they're going to put on this big parade to celebrate what he has done. But in having this big parade, they determined that they're not going to lead the parade through the main gate of the city. No, they got to do something extraordinary. Something extraordinary happened here. We need to do something extraordinary to show our appreciation. So they tear a new hole in the wall and create a brand new gate named after him and dedicated his honor. I mean, they pull out all the stops to give him a welcome that he will remember for the rest of his days. That's the kind of welcome that God is going to offer to you and to me when we enter into the new heavens and the new earth. Erwin Lutzer is a preacher up in Chicago, and he tells about a number of years ago, he and his daughters made a trip to Washington, D.C., and while they were out there, Erwin called a friend of his who at that point in time happened to be part of the Secret Service detail, the Secret Service security team for the president. And in the course of the conversation, uh, as the friend learned that Irwin and his family were there to visit, the, his friend said, well, why don't you let me give you a tour of the White House? Because I can show you things you're, you're not going to see in the normal tour. In fact, I can get you into the Oval Office. So the next day, Irwin Lutzer and his two daughters, they passed by every one of the security checkpoints, and not once were they questioned or even searched. Because every time they met one of those guards at the different points along the way, every time they met a guard, the guard would take a look at Irwin's friend, the Secret Service man standing there and said, oh, 
Are you with him? You are? Be fine. Go on in. And suddenly, Erwin Lutzer and his family were given access to some of the greatest places of power in the whole world. And it wasn't because there was anything special about them, but there was something special about this friend who was walking with them. Now, that's exactly what Peter is talking about here. When you become a Christian, you're not alone anymore. You've got somebody special standing at your side. God is present with you every moment of the day. And because of his providence and grace and power and wisdom, he can open doors and present you with opportunities to say things and do things that weren't possible before. Because of his personal presence in your life, now your life can add up to something so much better, so much more in terms of significance and impact. So when you stop to think about all that God offers and all that God provides, what are we doing with it? Are we taking the blessings that God has given to us and making something worthwhile 